when people used the word romantic in this period, it was often in connection with these elements of horror rather than romance. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Well, hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we're ramping up to Valentine's Day, and we were talking about romanticism to honor the occasion, devoting a few weeks to it here because uh, there's a lot to talk about kind of working through the topics of your essay on romanticism, which, of course, we'll link to. We always link to what we're talking about on the podcast so people can read it for themselves. Uh, talked a little bit last time about uh, the origins of romanticism, folkloric history, and so on. And talked a little bit about nationalism. I guess we could talk a little bit more about nationalism and some of the other topics. Right. Uh, one of the things that was very common during the Romantic period was uh, the idea of traveling to Italy. Um, both Germans and English were people who had enough money and leisure to do so, uh, loved to go to Italy to uh, look at the crumbling classical architecture and listen to the music and admire the landscape and um, just generally get wrapped up in the, the long ago time, this idea of immersing yourself in a distant, uh, exotic, romantic past is very much part of it. Goethe went to Italy and um, did some painting there and drawing. Uh, he also, however, reconnected with the classical tradition there and did a very odd thing of trying to blend together the classical and the romantic in the second part of Faust. That's how he wound up having Helen of Troy introduced into what had been a very Nordic kind of story. And uh, we talked a little bit about the composers who were very nationalistic and the folklorists who focused on the individual countries' folklore traditions. Um, but a figure that towers above everybody and really creates a sense of nationalism in the arts is Shakespeare. Mm. Now, right now, we don't think usually of Shakespeare as a folk artist. He's the great classic, and people think about him as that's high literature. That's the tough stuff that uh, academics study and kids are sometimes reluctant to dig into, um, but still very, very popular. But during the Romantic period, that's when Shakespeare really took off. Um, in his own time, he was a popular artist. Of course, he wrote for the popular stage. He did not go to college. Um, he was not part of the whole academic establishment of his time. Um, far as we know, he studied very little in the way of foreign languages and read a great deal. He was uh, well-educated and the public schools of his time emphasized a lot on history and culture to a degree that our modern schools don't, so that he probably knew more about what we would call high culture than a lot of college graduates do today. And the immediate reaction to him by a lot of the more sophisticated, uh, highly educated people of his time uh, was that he was not a serious author, that he was... Um, 
you know, of the people. He uh, attracted mass audiences, people who would come and stand for a, a very small sum of money in the theaters and watch these plays with a lot of slapstick where he mixed together comedy and tragedy um, and uh, used all kinds of techniques that were not considered proper classical ones. Uh, the notion evolved eventually doesn't get absolutely formalized until a little bit later than Shakespeare. But there's this ideal in both France and England that a proper drama uh, should observe the unities. And it's more influential in France than in England, actually. But the unities are of uh, place and time and theme. There should just be one story, no subplots, <laughs> just one main action. It should take place more or less in real time that is on a day or a night and the action should begin and end and not jump ahead and say, you know, five years later, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And it should also, and not jump around from place to place. It should be in one place. It was economical and you'd have one setting, which would be, you know, the marketplace or somebody's drawing room or something like that. But whereas Shakespeare will plop you down on the shore of a deserted island or, um, you know, take you from from one city to another, um, take you from the city out into the forest. Um, all of those were violations of those traditional rules. And of course, in the popular theater, people just love that sort of thing. They didn't care what those academics who were harumphing about this sort of thing did. Um, Shakespeare always was popular in England and his plays continue to be performed, but often um amended one of the things that uh, later performers were famous for doing is putting happy endings on his plays mm. including the tragedies king lear classical example um and editing them to suit later taste that continued right on through the romantic period but shakespeare's as the great author maybe the greatest author who ever lived he and homer are the two candidates out there um that's a romantic creation and shakespeare is an international figure that's also a function of romanticism it was the germans who first fell in love with him and they began to explore and translate his works and the thing about translating is that it can update a work so by the 19th century shakespeare's language is already getting pretty antique people have to look up a lot of the words and you know you have to study it in order to get it so it doesn't have the same spontaneous power that it did to its original audiences the germans of course are using contemporary german they understand perfectly well what the characters are saying even though it's not shakespeare's words it's some german words that are supposed to mean the same thing so the impact much more powerful much more direct as an example, uh, he just stunned the Germans, and we start to get uh, writers like Schiller and Goethe, who are inspired by him and use some of his themes, sometimes even his plots, um, imitate him. Faust never would have existed without Shakespeare. Faust was inspired by a puppet play of popular culture. Uh, the structure of it and the way he mixes up comedy and tragedy and satire it is very Shakespearean. And the Germans are still big boosters of Shakespeare. There are lots of operas based on Shakespeare's plays, um, romantic operas. 
the French resist longer. It, it takes a long time. The French pride themselves on their adherence to rationalism and Moliere's sort of satire and so on. Uh, but eventually, even the French give in and you get people like Berlioz um, doing amazing works that uh, have a very Shakespearean feel to them. Uh, Shakespeare's turned into almost a god. Right down to this day, of course, there's this tremendous attitude for him. But it's something that was a long burning fuse. It took a long time from his own period um, to the early 18th and late 19th centuries before he really took off and uh, swept all across Europe. And now around the world where you can find Shakespeare in almost every culture. Which is a little strange to our ear hearing that there was about a 200-year period where Shakespeare was just another guy who had some plays that he had written. Yeah, and his name would not even have been known in a lot of Europe. Right, yes. And um, we know some about his contemporaries, Christopher Marlowe and uh, Ben Jonson, you know, mainly people who were purported to possibly have written his plays, right? So Francis Bacon. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we know a little bit about some of the contemporaries of Shakespeare only because of Shakespeare. That's my belief anyway. We don't know a lot about, um, you know, later 17th century authors or early 18th century English authors. And a little bit here and there, uh, we might know some names, but um, that little group of people, I think, is focused on because of Shakespeare. I think Shakespeare brought up that whole period of the Elizabethan writing. He had touched on the Shakespeare didn't write the place of Shakespeare controversy. And uh, I had a colleague in the English department, uh, not a full professor, but somebody who bought into that idea. But um, most Shakespeare scholars, the vast majority, I would say the percentage of Shakespeare scholars who think that Shakespeare wrote his own plays is probably about the same as the percentage of climate scientists who think that uh, humans are warming the planet. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's overwhelming. Oh, sure. But there's been this long tradition of people thinking, well, he didn't go to college. He was a simple guy. His father was a wool merchant. Um, how could he possibly have created these magnificent things? But actually, if you know the period, well, his plays are not academic. And the popular culture was just in a ferment at that time with the explosion of printing, all these books being translated. He had access to so much that could be read. You didn't need to go to come for you. People forget you did not study literature in college. If you went to college, you studied philosophy and foreign languages, mathematics and religion. That was it. You did not study literary classics. That was something you did for recreation on the side. And if you could read English, all of a sudden there were a huge number of translations available to Shakespeare. But this delusory idea that he is this folk poet on the one hand, who's just a simple peasant, almost <laughs> bourgeois at the best, um, that's a romantic conception, and uh, they celebrate him for that. But then the backlash begins to come and says, yeah, but he was so simple and ordinary that he must not have written his plays. Um, Mark Twain notably fell for that argument, which he never should have. He was too modest about his own writing, I thought. But there's a guy without a college education uh, who wrote magnificent works. And the first part of Huckleberry Finn is still thought to be maybe the greatest piece of fiction in America. 
but he wrote a book challenging the whole idea that Shakespeare wrote his plays. That's not a requirement of artistic or literary genius to be trained. In fact, it's probably often to your detriment. I think a lot of, uh, or maybe most influential musicians, um, innovators in areas are not classically trained, then that can be a benefit. Uh, if you want to read the best debate I've seen on it, um, it's the case for Edward de Vere having written Shakespeare's plays. Yeah. And there's a well, no, well, well known to me anyway, piece from the Atlantic Monthly. I'll link to that. Uh, two scholars debating the issue. One of them was allowed to write an essay. The other allowed to write an essay. They're allowed to read each other's essays and then write counter essays. Uh, they ran it as a whole lengthy debate in their magazine. This was probably 25 years ago now. Yeah. Well, I'd rather not spend any more time on it myself because it's <laughs> utter nonsense. But um, Shakespeare's influence just pervaded the arts. You not only had people writing Shakespearean-style plays, people writing novels about the plays, the idea of uh, reinventing history. And going back, Shakespeare, of course, wrote a great many history plays and the fascination that the Tudors have for us, for example, partly stems from his uh, tracing the origins of their leading up to Henry VIII. And there's just an amazing influence in that degree of just interest in the idea of the English throne being an epic drama that continues today, uh, very much being depicted now in the uh, Netflix series, The Crown. Mm-hmm. which is absolutely fabulous, highly recommended. But um, we also have in painting a lot of paintings depicting scenes from Shakespeare, and because that was something that everybody knew, just as older art would have depicted uh, Mary on the flight into Egypt. Um, people would uh, depict now um Romeo standing under Juliet's balcony, and you'd recognize both of those immediately. It's, I think probably more people would recognize Romeo and Juliet now than the flight into Egypt imagery. Mm-hmm. There's a recent New Yorker cartoon, by the way, of a Renaissance uh, lover standing down beneath the balcony with a, a beautiful woman up standing in the balcony looking down at him, and she's saying, I'm Juliet. Who the hell is Rapunzel? <laughs> <laughs> So everybody knows who Juliet is now. Right. Yeah. And then in music, uh, just as with Goethe's Faust being turned into operas, Shakespeare's plays were turned into operas, still are being. And uh, there are several versions of Romeo and Juliet by different composers, French and German, that uh, are still performed in opera houses today. And I actually was in Budapest in Hungary and saw a production of Verdi's Othello. And that's a good sign of how international his influence was. Although I can't say that I really saw the production because we got very cheap seats for $7, I think, with a partial view behind a pillar on the top balcony. And so I had to lean over sideways. I could see part of the stage. (laughs) But terrific music, nevertheless. Yeah, yeah. Let's move on here. We're talking about Shakespeare's influence um, I'm interested in the next topic that comes up in your essay is Gothic romance. Right. I love this little period of art history. Let's talk some about the influential works there. If Shakespeare went high, Gothic romance went low. <laughs> <laughs> Gothic romance was 
popular literature for sure. Best-selling novels, often in their early days, written by women, especially Anne Radcliffe, a huge best-selling author. And there are still a lot of women writing Gothic novels today. Anne Rice would be the modern Anne Radcliffe although maybe Anne Rice a little bit more serious. Um, there's just this fascination starting in the late 18th century. And by the way, often people think of Romanticism as being 19th century. It starts in the mid-18th century and overlaps and then just keeps on rolling in one form or another ever after. But the first Gothic novel is usually said to be Horace Walpole's The Castle of Otranto. 1765. So that's a long time before the 19th century. Yeah, that's a very early novel. Set in a haunted castle. And there are also various mysterious apparitions, notably a gigantic mailed fist that rises up outside a castle window. And another famous book from that time is The Monk by M.L. Lewis. He was so famous that he became known as Monk Lewis. This is part of a tradition of anti-Catholic propaganda in which uh, writers in France and England were writing from a rationalist or sometimes Protestant point of view and depicting monasteries and nunneries as hell holes, uh, places of depravity, of uh, all kinds of sexual misconduct and, and murder and devil worship and, and whatever else. And it, in England, this really caught on, and I think it was partly the British uh, rejection of Rome that reinforced it. Um, it eventually spreads to France, and uh, the novelist who's best known there is Eugène Sue, S-U-E, Eugène Sue, and he's the one that develops the idea of the wandering Jew and uh, becomes very influential. And, of course, Edgar Allan Poe in the United States, who's the one who really introduces the whole Gothic idea into our literature, which then goes back into France. Poe seems to read much better in French translation than he does in English. He's been hugely popular in France. And um, Poe develops a lot of the sort of standard formulas that continue on to attract people today. And those standard formulas would include a lot of mysticism or a lot of uh, supernatural horror. Yeah, you have to make a leap to some sort of supernatural world. Right. And there are people suffering under horrible curses, uh, the rising dead bodies, you know, the whole Frankenstein myth, which Mary Shelley put into its classic form. And uh, interestingly, Brian Aldiss, the great British science fiction writer and historian of science fiction, says that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is the origin of science fiction. Uh, because she was inspired by some early experiments showing that electricity applied to a dead frog would make it jump. And the notion that what animates the human body and what is the essence of life is electricity. This was a late 18th, early 19th century obsession. And uh, so for him, the idea of a scientist trying to patch together a human being out of dead parts and then bringing it to life again is a scientific idea. It's also a very romantic idea, this whole obsession, as, as Poe also had, with um, the premature burial. 
People were really afraid in those days that they might go into what we would call a coma and be pronounced dead and buried, and therefore they would wake up inside their tomb and horrible experience. And people were frightened enough of this that a number of people had alarms set up with like a bell cord inside the coffin. So if you woke up mistakenly buried, you could ring a bell and then somebody would come and dig you up and save you. So there's ghosts, of course, fascination with ghost stories are all a part of this. And when people use the word romantic in this period, it was often in connection with these elements of horror rather than romance. It's an enormous wave of fascination with the ghastly and the, the stuff that frightens you rather than that sweeps you off your feet in a traditional romantic way in the modern sense. One of the things that's attractive to me is that these stories are open for a lot of psychological interpretation, very much like Grimm's fairy tales or um, these origins of romanticism that we were talking about earlier. These stories, because they deal in the realm of the unnatural or supernatural world, in our attempts, or in my attempts anyway, to try to make sense of them, I immediately leap to some more psychological interpretation. Uh, feminist reader of Frankenstein would tell you it's Mary Shelley's commentary on men's attempts to always procreate without women, <laughs> to get women out of the picture and to subjugate women and move women to the side while we can propagate the species without them. Um, Stories in Poe of being buried alive or taking your rival down to the basement to literally bury him alive behind a cement wall or a brick wall, I should say. All of these story elements lend themselves to at least an attempt to make sense of it on a psychological level rather than a literal level. The idea of the fascination with the living dead and with the horrible and the gothic is really alive in modern graphic novels. Uh, one of the greatest creations being Neil Gaiman's series of graphic novels, The Sandman, where he revived an old character from Marvel Comics and completely transformed him and has some very dark um, very grim, but extremely beautiful works. He's a writer, not a cartoonist, but he got wonderful artists to do them. And uh, I would say that after Poe, for me, Neil Gaiman is the greatest gothic creator of our time. Uh, of course, a lot of people are fascinated by the Twilight novels set not far from here in the town of Forks which was famous as a logging town, which went into a deep depression, partly because of environmental protection regulations, and uh, was sort of a notorious as a super right-wing redneck neighborhood uh, that hated tree huggers and all they stood for, and now has been totally transformed into a sort of theme park where you can go and experience vampire stuff. The author of the vampire novels uh, never went there. <laughs> She, she just imagined it as being a place. But now they've got a pickup truck that appears in the in the movies. It is also there, and there's stores, and people go on these guided tours and everything. It's really pretty amazing. <laughs> but uh, the Gothic has come and gone over the years in popularity. I would say we're at a high point of it now. I was just watching the latest episode of the Sherlock series on PBS, 
which has taken a very gothic bent. You know, Sherlock is the ultra-rationalist, very anti-romantic, and yet what they've done with him with some heavy influence from Doctor Who is they put a lot of uh, supernatural and horror influence into it. Yeah, right. But the gothic romance was not just you know, cheap novels. Most people, if you try to read these old gothic romances like Anne Radcliffe, they're pretty unreadable, even people who like to read the modern ones. But it did have some influence besides Poe and some other major authors, uh, Charlotte Bronte, her Jane Eyre, the idea of being in a, in a mysterious palace with a dark and brooding man who has this secret up in the top story. And uh, Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights is the other great work of the English Gothic from the Romantic period. Those dark brooding men, <laughs> that's always a tip off. Yeah, yeah. And that seems to never go away. Mm-hmm. There was an interesting article in the New York Times recently focusing mostly on TV and movies about the tradition of the raped and abandoned, uh, horribly mistreated woman being a, a romantic theme that turns up a lot where women's ravaged bodies become sort of just fascinated, but not from the point of view of the woman. It's always somebody standing from outside and then it's often highly sexualized. And this article was exploring how recently rape revenge has become a major theme where it's from the point of view of the woman and what she does to the man and how she gets back at him or other people on her behalf. So it's a sort of feminist backlash uh, and pointing out that the recent series Westworld does a sort of combination of it where it's pretty exploitive of women sexually. It's about a fantasy land where people can go and rape and murder women to their heart's content. But on the other hand, where one of the central female figures who is nude for most of her role, Thandi Newton, um, but she says she loved the role because she becomes very powerful and she becomes this figure taking revenge, although there's suggestions that maybe even she's being manipulated. But it's an interesting article. We should make a link to that. Yeah, well, let's do that. And let's also talk more about romanticism next time we talk. There's still plenty, isn't there, to talk about? Oh, yes. We've just barely scratched the surface here. All right. Well, let's get going next time, and we'll talk about medievalism and uh, some of the other later incarnations of romanticism, and eventually we'll end up right up to today. Of course, we're, we're interweaving things from today all throughout. Well, thanks again, Paul. We'll just pick this up again as we uh, get closer and closer to Valentine's Day uh, get people in the romantic spirit. How about that? Well, I don't know if we get them in the romantic spirit they're thinking of, but it'll give them something to think about. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller. At our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.